Good evening, and welcome back to All About Ovid. That's all with an O, about with an O, Ovid with an O. Uh, my name is B. Peterson, I am your host, and with me as always is... Uh, oh, golly, who am I? Uh, my name is Whitney Seibold. Thank you for having me again for on this 21st episode of All About Ovid, uh, where uh, yep. we're, we're back to our usual uh, sneeze and see what we hit approach to watching things on Ovid. <laughs> uh, right. Uh, yeah, catching up on stuff. Maybe seeing some of the same stuff, but maybe mostly not. Uh, but you know that I feel like Ovid is like the best service to do that. Uh, it's right because you're more likely to hit something good. And Ovid doesn't sponsor this podcast, by the way. We just like it. No. Uh, so yeah, we, when, we would when when if we they get to us, but <laughs> I, uh, if 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 we get effusive about the service, know that they're they're not paying us. We're just this is genuine enthusiasm. Uh, so I feel like when you when you tune into Ovid, when you flick on your streaming services, there's a lot of entertainment options out there, uh, and <laughs> you could uh, you know choose a random film or random video, uh, not knowing anything about what it is, and have a pretty pretty good chance that you're going to see something at the very least unique and challenging. Uh, and I feel like that was kind of what I did. And I ended up landing on a film that uh, you previously talked about B uh, and we'll get to that one. Right. Yeah. Um, how, how's awards, the awards trek going? Oh golly. I don't, <laughs> it is how oh, God award season for, uh, for professional critics is it's exciting and it's awful all at the same time. Uh, exciting because, this is when the big studios kind of hold back their like prestige dramas and their more ambitious, more adult films. And so we look forward to that. We want to see what what kind of what are the studios up to? They've been holding these back all year. We haven't been seeing these during the summer. Uh, and it's awful because these movies come out and we don't really get a chance to really properly talk about them, let them sort of sink into our memory for a few months. We don't get to ponder them and have longer discussions about them. We get some pretty angry discussions about licorice pizza on social media. But uh, <laughs> yeah, if you're if you're on the Twitters, don't read about licorice pizza. There's some pretty angry discussions about uh, both pro and con uh, for that movie, <clears throat> which we most people haven't even seen it yet. So. Yeah, I've anyway. <laughs> I've seen it. And I think the discussion. I think it's kind of wild that there's an actually a poster for a Paul Thomas Anderson film at the local theater. Mm -hmm. I was like, wow, there's like a huge poster for Licorice Pizza. That is a that is a weird thing <laughs> to see for 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 me out in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, anyway. it, it it is the time of year when a Paul Thomas Anderson movie can get like a good chunk of national attention. Uh, but the conversation right. about all of these year-end movies is about what kind of awards they might get rather than talking about the films themse themselves or what they're doing in terms of art or performance right. or drama. Uh, so it's incredibly maddening. Yeah, uh, I've been watching a bunch of award stuff, too, in the past. Uh, we're recording this early, by the way. Um, we've, this, it's only been about two weeks mm -hmm. um, since I last saw you. It's good to see you again so soon. Yeah. Uh, but this... I uh, this won't come out until uh, uh, the end of the month. But um, anyway, I've been watching a bunch of... Uh, catching up on a bunch of stuff. I got to see Drive My Car. Oh. My word. My... Drive My Car. 
You're going to love it. Here's a, here's you know where I... a, there's there's a central theatrical element to drive my car, and it's an extensive exploration of Uncle Vanya. Oh and I'm my just, god! It just <laughs> this is so my jam. You, you you don't even know, man. It's it's oh gonna be so god. great. Oh, <laughs> uh, I I do kind of know because I actually did get to start drive my car, but the digital screener I was using uh, broke down about 45 minutes yeah. in. So I've seen the first four. 45 minutes of drive my car and I need to return and finish it. So which I can't... is like the, op- which is weird because the credits don't show up until like 40 minutes into the film. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the opening credits. So you've seen essentially the preamble. <laughs> I've seen the prologue to Drive My Car, and and I really want to see more because we which is three hours long. Yeah, we we saw Happy Hour. We talked about Happy Hour uh, the, the, from the same right. director on on here on this podcast, and I'm eager to see more. And I like what I've seen so far, and I think there's a lot of. Do you know that Ryosuke Hamaguchi actually had two movies out this year? He kind of pulled a Ridley Scott and had two months movies come out in two months. Oh, what was um, the because the other he one had was, Drive um, My Car out? Uh huh. Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy. Right, 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 right. I want to, and that's, I also have a screener for that and I haven't seen that. Um, there, there's a lot. A, Check that one out. A lot it's, of really yeah, excellent so. um, international films that aren't part of the awards conversation, but I'm going to nominate because that's the kind of contrarian I am. I belong to a few uh, award nominating bodies and it, that's another frustrating, a little insider baseball. It's kind of frustrating. I'm not going to say the names of the organizations or, or mm. what kind of things we did, just, you know, for, for propriety's okay. sake. We all don't know which one. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, a lot of people are kind of clustering around the kinds of films you might expect them to, the kinds of awards contenders that you see at the Academy Awards. And right. that's maddening to me because I want to talk about a greater variety of films. And I want to talk about Ryusuke Hamaguchi. And right. uh, it's it's just, no, nah, it, it's frustrating. <laughs> Well, I've been balancing my new the all the new releases and awards films or whatever with I've also been doing since seeing Power The Power of the Dog, which was my first Jane Campion film, mm-hmm. I've been seeing a Jane Campion film a day for the past two weeks. Oh my goodness. Um, okay. And it's been awesome. <laughs> um, I've gotten through most of her shorts, I've seen both of her miniseries, and I've seen like four um, of her features now and it's yeah I'm it, Bright Star um, I love John Bright Star Keats romance is so good it's like <laughs> it's, it's I never knew that a like a PG-13 romance could be so engrossing like mm. there's there's no sex in it at all but yet you feel the attraction is like the attraction between two black holes and it's like oh my word how could anything ever tear these two apart anyway uh yeah it's bright stars great uh yeah, I, I, and I, I, regarding I like the power bright of the Star dog i just i just like to ask you a question and i'm being very vulnerable here whitney mm-hmm. um is it wrong that i didn't so much as feel repelled by benedict cumberbatch's phil as i was strongly attracted to him <laughs> well, you know what? I think the film was doing its job. I think he's uh, uh, because the character is is supposed to be uh, very deliberately repellent. He's trying to create his world by excluding people, and in so doing, is revealing the little tiny chinks in his armor, isn't he? He's letting us know where you can get in, and we do eventually learn where someone can get in, and that's 
I mean, that's not necessarily the healthiest thing. That's the bad boy, I'm gonna fix him kind of thing. But, I mean, yeah, well, sometimes, <laughs> sometimes we're attracted to that, aren't we? And there's, uh, as long as Which we acknowledge like the, that. The, the way he, like, looks at the paper flower and then looks at the kid hmm. and he's like, oh, this kid created this purple flower. And then he picks up the paper flower and he just kind of sticks his finger in it. I was just like, oh my word. <laughs> Yeah, there's there there's nothing nothing sexual about what just happened there. No. Um anyway. All right, let's let's get to Ovid. Um so okay. Um Ovid TV, streaming service, you you know the drill. It's we're 21 episodes in by now. Mm. Um let's start with the film that we both saw um okay. this this past cycle. Um, and it is a 1956 film. We're going old school here. We're going French New Wave here. We're going pre-French New Wave, yeah, unless was... you count Agnes Varda's La Pointe Court as the beginning of the French New Wave, in which case it is post the beginning of French New Wave. Um, I, I, th- I, th- I think Agnes Varda is, is part of the French New Wave the same way uh, Black Christmas or uh, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre are slashers, in that the rules hadn't quite been written yet, but in retrospect, we can include it. Uh, so like, right. If, if then like Halloween is often called said, Oh, that was the first like proper slasher movie. I feel like there were, there were movies before breathless that were part of the French new wave. Mm-hmm. Uh, but breathless is always, yeah. well, that's kind of the one that really cal for something was calcifying. It kind of codified it. So I'm okay with people saying breathless was the start of it, but we all know the truth. Yes. Yeah. Um, but anyway, we're talking about Alan René here, um, who, again, was a very prominent figure in the French New Wave. This is actually my first film of his, um, because really outside of Agnes Varda, like, I just haven't really been able to get into the French New Wave. Um, like, I've seen, like, a bunch of the classics and, like, 400 Blows, Breathless, all this stuff, and I was just like, I'm not getting into it, and I don't know why. And then I watched Cleo from five to seven. And I was like, "Oh, here, here it is." And I just kind of stuck with Agnes Varda after that. So I'm not that mu- that much experienced. But what we have here is um, from 1956 is something that uh, actually Agnes Varda did in 1958 was was commercials, mm-hmm. um, commissioned films uh, trying to promote some uh, some tourism aspect or or commercial thing and where Agnes Varda made films about the chateaus of of southern France and um and the beaches of southern France uh films called Season au Chateau and Along the Coast here we have Alain René doing uh the National Library in an amazing little short called All the World's Memory uh, toute la mémoire du monde, or all all the memory in the world, depending on which uh, which version you're looking up. But uh, uh, yeah, this is uh, totally in line with Alan Rene, uh, with what Alan Rene does. If if you've seen other Alan Rene films, you know that memory is an obsession of his, uh, especially when it comes to uh, the film he did last year at Marion Bad. Uh, have you seen last year at Marion Bad? I haven't seen Last Year in Marion Bad. <laughs> okay. See Last Year in Marion Bad. It's exhilarating. I'll get to it. <laughs> uh, it it's, it's a, uh, Last Year in Marion Bad is a lot like a dream because it takes place in, uh, the, it takes place in the, the part of the brain where, uh, time 
uh, kind of loses meaning. Memory is not linear. The human mind is, doesn't remember things in a linear fashion. Uh, we remember the stronger things. And this is very much a film about how we remember things out of order. We're not sure if we're remembering things correctly. And we remember things in several different ways at the same time sometimes. Uh, and Last Year in Marion Bad is this just exhilarating piece of like uh, memory realism, if you will, of uh, right. kind of wandering around inside the subconscious. Uh, he also did Hiroshima Mon Amour, which is about remembering uh, sort of the scars of war uh, and other films besides. Uh, this one, however, is about a library. And what is a library if not a... a, a a memory bank. A, te- a, te- a temple for memory, yeah. A, pl- a place where you go to worship human memory. Uh, and as such, he that's what he tends to focus on. What are we choosing to remember? How are we remembering it? And in so doing, in an incredibly French sort of way, uh, begins to uh, infuse everything with l'ennui and sadness and futility and yet that futility is exhilarating because it's part of us but we are all futile we're going to remember these things and you expect him to say something along the lines of and in one million years this will be gone and we'll all be dead (laughs) he doesn't he doesn't go that route but that's kind of the direction he's facing yeah it's it's a strange it's a strange film when you consider it as like a commercial for a place that was commissioned by a place um Mm -hmm. like imagine if all commercials were like this and were like agnes varda's shorts from 1958 like imagine if Mm -hmm. commercials were this like weird and thoughtful and long like then i would actually be interested in maybe what you're selling Mm -hmm. um but (laughs) this film opens not with like the gorgeous architecture of the library we get there but it opens with just this cave that is just the books are piled to the roof of the ceiling of this cave and it's just like here is the whole sum of human knowledge it is in its most pure state but we cannot handle it we tremble before it and so we must imprison it and then cut to the library and it's like and the way that he sh- he shoots the library throughout is almost like more uh, less than like this temple to me and it felt more like a prison like it's all about the metal bars and the gates and everything mm. and it's what we're imprisoning the knowledge because we dare not let it loose uh-huh. um and and it, it just was this really beautiful and almost hypnotic approach to the way that like a book will come in and then it'll get categorized and then it'll get lost in the caverns of knowledge. <laughs> um, reminded it was, it was interesting watching this and then thinking of Frederick Wiseman's ex Libris, which is a film about the New York public library and mm-hmm. the, how that film treats libraries as these just very, uh, it, it treats libraries very differently. If you can go listen to our episode of our weekly Wiseman about ex ex libris to get more of an insight mm. into that. But, um, but it's just, yeah, this, I, 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 this film was so, so strange. And also just like, man, I haven't been to the library in a while. I kind of want to go back. Now. <laughs> and, but yeah, just like I, yeah, this is, it was just absolutely gorgeous to look at. And, 
just fascinating to to see just the pure immensity of text and you realize how little mm. any one person knows about anything uh, what what I find fascinating, you constantly hear, uh, and this this isn't actually true. Uh, this st- statistic that the human brain is only like only ten percent of is is ever active, oh, and yeah. there's ninety yeah. percent of our brains we don't access. Th- that's not strictly speaking true. I think uh, what the statistic alludes to is that at any given moment we're maybe only using ten percent of our brains, like we're not accessing all one hundred percent of it at all time. But it's not that, like, 90% of it is just dead meat. Uh, Anyway, uh, but this idea that our minds are only partially active, and Mm -hmm. especially as you get older and you start to, you know, accumulate more memories and forget older memories, uh, makes your brain seem like that library, a human mind, where it is full of all of these memories and full of the knowledge and full of all of your experiences, and you're just not using a lot of it. It's not being accessed. Uh, it's there if you need it. And eventually you just sort of neglect it. You forget it's there. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that's sort of what uh, what Renee is getting at, that we're trying as hard as we can to keep our brains full, to keep this detailed history of of america or of uh, france in his case or of uh, of the world and we're just forgetting our own history uh right this was in the 1950s this was after world war ii and i think uh alan renee who had grown up during world war ii was giving that kind of reckoning he was looking back at the horrors of the past and how we had kind of gotten back to normal and was maybe trying to chasten his nation and chasten the world for forgetting stuff. The knowledge is there, but we're ignoring it. Yeah. That could have, um, I'm just speculating on his motivation right. now, but that, se- that seems fair. Um, also, this is something that Alan Rene couldn't have been thinking about, but something that I was thinking about is how all the world's memory maybe also kind of felt like this was like exploring a computer before those were really a thing because look how everything is categorized and it's but it's all physical like we're looking at a a physical memory bank we're looking at terabytes and terabytes and terabytes of data before terabytes mm-hmm. are a thing and it's just <laughs> like this is like just a huge computer and it's like here's the motherboard and mm-hmm. here's the pro- how, how we process files and here's how a search inquiry works on a search engine and and it, and but it's all physical and so this is just you know my modern sensibility imposing this on this you know analog system but it's just like yeah mm-hmm. memory man you know kind of like like a like memory man and so <laughs> This machine uh, is like a brain? Yeah. Wild, man. Anyway, so this is a delightful 21-minute short shot in gorgeous black mm-hmm. and white. And yeah, there's just there's a lot there, literally, and also to uh, think about. Uh, so yeah, highly recommend everyone check all the world's memory out. Um, uh, from there, um, I'm gonna I've once again have seen more stuff than you have, so I'm gonna I'm gonna go through some stuff that I've that I've seen, um, mm. and I'll, I'm gonna talk about uh, three Madeline Anderson shorts. Madeline Anderson is credited by the Smithsonian as being the first African American woman to direct a documentary, mm. um, and 
she got her start in the 60s. Um, and there is, so there are three films on Ovid uh, by Madeline Anderson. There is Integration Report 1 from 1960. There is a tribute to Malcolm X from 1967, and I Am Somebody from 1970. Integration Report 1 is just that. It is a report on how people are coming to the around to the idea of integration. We start in the South. It's going terribly. Police, mm. dogs, you know, mobs, all that stuff. And, and, um, and we get to see, in a brief moment, Martin Luther King speaking. Um, mm. And how various uh, pastors and religious leaders are what what they're saying about it um and then we get to see the people outside of the churches um ready to you know wanting all hell to break loose um we hear names of people this man was just killed by cops and and it's a name that i've never heard of and that's and it's just again it's just this thing is like this has been happening forever um Mm. we move up to the north and an integration a school is being integrated and we get to hear uh uh, some interviews with some women who are protesting this integration and there are some who are just these poor people um are coming into our schools and they're going to drag down our grades and stuff like that but then you also hear this woman who's just like this is this is about um, we don't want them to have to take this bus to so far away and it's just like there's there's all these reasons why it just doesn't make sense and he's like so it's not mm. about race at all oh no 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 this isn't about oh. race I don't know what you, you to, no I'm, <sighs> I'm not racist and it's just like okay oh so God. this has been happening forever mm-hmm. and then um, we move to um, I think it's. I think it's West Virginia, and we get to see one of the first big famous uh, diner sit-ins at a Woolworths, um, and we get to see the uh, men and women, the young uh, black men and women, sitting in at this Woolworths, and then being arrested by police, and then them being cheered on by scores of people as they are arrested, um, and then eventually released. And it's a blink-and-you-miss-it moment. But there are two shots in there, I'm pretty sure, where you say, hey, that guy looks familiar. I'm pretty sure that's John Lewis. And it turns out that, yeah, that was one of the first big protests that John Lewis participated in. Um, he's not <laughs> credited. No one knows his name in this. But it's, you oh, can see it's, well, right he's, there, he's just a young baby jo- John Lewis. Oh, and, wow. Like, he's, he's just a guy at that point. He's just protesting yeah. man. Mm. Yeah. Um, oh, that's also, great. In the credits, um, we hear throughout this film a lot of uh, gospel choruses being sung. They're very beautiful. In the credits, yeah. guess who was one of the singers? Maya Angelou. Um, <laughs> nice. So, yeah, so just like this really, it's this, this short that, you know, maybe watching is like, wow, that's really insightful and not think of much of it. And then you realize that all of these really important people before they were really known um, are in there. So that's really cool. Um, a tribute to Malcolm X um, from 1967 um, is it actually opens with, I think, something that was made for TV in like the 80s or something. But this was actually a film produced for William Greaves, director of Symbiopsychotaxoplasm, his TV okay. network. Um, okay. And it is a 16 minute um, short about 
uh, Malcolm X, and it opens with this TV bumper uh, talking about the Schomburg Institute, which um, if you watch um, Frederick Wiseman's Ex Libris, you know a bit about the Schomburg mm-hmm. Institute, which was this, he was a black man who began who began an effort to collect every single text ever published by black people in the world. Mm. Um, and it's incredibly ambitious thing. And they're basically talking about in the eighties of like, yeah, um, we're too small for this operation. We got to expand. And you get to see in ex libris, Frederick Wiseman's films, how the Schomburg Institute has expanded. And so anyways, so there's that, but the film itself, the tribute to Malcolm X itself is just mostly, um, archival footage of Malcolm X. And specifically, it's a lot more nuanced picture of Malcolm X than maybe the news would have portrayed him. And hmm. it's him like explaining in depth by what he meant when he said chickens come home to roost or him talking about um, in depth about his experience when he made uh, the pilgrimage to Mecca. All this is interspersed with an interview with his widow. And so it's it's a very short um, little documentary, but um, but offers a picture of Malcolm X that you probably wouldn't see anywhere else besides maybe Spike Lee's film, which is just a really great movie. Uh, One of the better movies. Um, And um, so, so yeah, a tribute to Malcolm X, also very good. And then finally, I Am Somebody from 1970 um, is about a half hour short um, about a strike that was taking place at a hospital. Hmm. Um, because uh, there was a pay gap. And when people got fired, it was always the black women got fired. And so everyone struck, started, all the, all the black uh, uh, nurses started to strike and to form a union. And it's this really, and it's about this, about a hundred days or so of striking. And it's just following the women. It's following uh, the head of the hospital who's like, I don't see this as a civil rights issue. I don't, not sure what's going on here. Mm. Um, and it's just following these women, uh, following the news media documentation of them. After a while, the news media falls off of covering them, even though they're still out there doing their thing. But Madeline Anderson is still there. And and eventually it comes to the formation of a union and their demands being met. And so it's just this really good de- film about, hey, this can work. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, still nothing, not saying that things are even close to perfect now, but progress. Not, be- not because of, you know, because of the goodness of, of white people, but despite them. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, three really informative and just great documentaries from Madeline Anderson. You can find them on Ovid. I recommend it. Excellent. Um, um you so yeah, we're we're you you, you, you can keep talking cuz I I saw um two two additional shorts and a feature film. Uh and you have seen what like 19 other films. How many did you see this week? 28? Uh um, Okay, I'll, I'll quite talk a, about quite a few. I'll talk about so tell I'll talk about, tell me tell me more. Sorry, just tell me more. Okay, um, so I actually forgot that I saw this because it's not actually on uh, Letterboxd, and so I just remembered that I did in fact see it, and I was like, oh yeah, I got to mm-hmm. talk about this. Um, El Poeta is a fifty-minute uh, documentary um, from. See, now I have to look up their names um, because they're not anywhere okay el poeta from i believe 2016 
That's right. Um, it's directed by uh, Katie Galloway and Kelly Duane uh, de la Vega. And mm-hmm. it tells the story of Javier Cecilia, who um, is a very well-known poet in Mexico. And he... And it's, and it's interesting because in Mexico, poets are very different than poets here. Poets are treated like these are like intellectuals that everyone listens to. They're like mm. a they're like a, if you have a PhD in a MacArthur grant, like that's like being a poet in Mexico. Um, like poets are okay. these, these cultural figures that have, that you know people pay attention to. And this film is actually about how in 20, I believe it's I think it's 2011 or 2012, um, he lost his son to gang violence from rising gang tensions because of Mexico's war on drugs, war on the cartels. And this mm-hmm. film is actually about, as it turns out, much less about poetry um, and about that the war on the war on drugs in Mexico and how... Hmm. thanks to Nixon and then eventually George W. Bush was like hey president of Mexico why don't you take care of your own problem and start your own war on drugs and so they did and it just led to a huge rise in gang violence and like thousands and thousands of innocent civilians Hmm. are just getting murdered by cops and by the cartels Uh, and so Javier Cecilia after losing his son quits writing poetry we see a grand total of one poem in this film, and it is his last poem, which he dedicated to his son. Um, and it's a very good poem. Um, it's a translation of it into English. I would have liked to, to read the, the Spanish one, because I know Spanish. But, um, but uh, how he eventually quit poetry and began um, becoming an, an activist against the war on drugs. He goes mm-hmm. to the president who he knows and says, Hey, cut it out. And he starts this huge campaign and it's like this gigantic campaign in Mexico. And it's getting kind of world coverage of Mm. the, of protesting the war on the war on, on drugs there. And what's interesting about this documentary is it starts to feel after a bit, kind of like, because we get interview, like the primary interview in the film, like the original footage for the documentary is an interview with Javier Sicilia. Mm-hmm. Um, and it starts to kind of begin to feel like a puff piece of him. And it's about, and he's just like, man, look how great this guy is. And, but he's also kind of the most important figure in this movement. And you're just kind of feeling, well, I would really like to hear some of the other stories of the other people who have lost to this thing, but we're only focusing on him and who he chooses to focus on. And Mm -hmm. it kind of starts to feel like maybe this is, maybe it, it, it doesn't so much feel like an underdog story anymore. And it kind of feels like maybe he's kind of uh, just, using the media as his tool to just kind of bolster his own image. Huh. And it kind of feels odd for a bit. And then he says, I'm taking my campaign to the States. I'm going to the States. We're going to do a six month long tour um, of the States. We're going to go from LA to DC. Hmm. Um, And in the spirit of the people who 
uh, Javier Sicilia idolizes, like Dr. King and John Lewis. Um, and he gets to L.A., and there is not a single English English language media represented there at all. It's mm. only Spanish language media that is there covering this six month long essentially caravan from LA to DC protesting the war on drugs. And you realize that no matter how big he is in Mexico, the states just aren't gonna give him a lick of attention. And his mm. his speeches go from being attended by thousands to by dozens. And mm. there are some key people who are there. Dolores Huerta shows up, um, who was integral with the Cesar Chavez movement, uh, the, the, the farmers movement. Um, and, and when he gets to D.C., he gets to meet John mm. Lewis. Um, and they talk about their experiences with, with protest and stuff like that and and you realize that while maybe it seemed like for a minute that he was actually going to be able to do something and maybe he was you know almost having too much voice Mm -hmm. you realize that his impact is nothing because then at the end the president of mexico says you know, I've heard all that what you said, and it hurts me so much. And what I know is that I should have started the war on drugs sooner. And and it's just it's that, kind of depressing. I was about to say uh, that's that, that's that's pretty friggin' heartbreaking, isn't it? Ugh. Yeah, and yeah, and so the the film itself, there's nothing really formally that interesting about it. For a film called The Poet, it doesn't have much poetry to it, um, but um, but I am glad I saw it because it did illuminate me to this whole movement, which, again, I know nothing about because it was given no coverage here. Um, this is stuff uh, that happened six years ago, mm. and, I've, and it seems to have been long forgotten in the States. Yeah, and there are... So, yeah. There is... I live uh, I live in Los Angeles and uh, you know we have a, a lot of uh, a, a pretty big Spanish speaking population here and uh, we have a lot of uh, Mexican immigrants living here in in Los Angeles. We have a, a lot of immigrants from everywhere living in Los Angeles. Uh it's I think it's pretty great and just living here even if you're not actively you know, learning another language, you kind of pick some of it up. It's just around you. And so some of this uh this kind of news coverage of, of these sorts of events and these kinds of protests will catch your eye from time to time. Right. But they're not making their way to the English speaking population. There's a definite right. divide in the way, and this is all you know, just racism in the way media is handled in this country and how, right. uh, yeah, I mean, it's just another arm of the, the pervasive racism that exists in the United States, but uh, it's, even here in Los Angeles, there's still this kind of wall in between English-speaking media and Spanish-speaking media. I feel like as gigantic corporations start to buy up the Spanish-speaking media, like I think I think Disney owns Telemundo now. Uh, okay, doesn't surprise me. <laughs> I mean, Disney owns everything, and uh, it, it might be corporate greed 
that brings these things closer together, uh, that actually gets, uh, you know, Spanish language and English language media a little bit more, uh, openly integrated. Uh, who's to say? If, if anything good can come out of corporate greed, fine. Let that be one of the things. But yeah, I, I, uh, it, it's pretty embarrassing how little non-Spanish speaking people don't get to know about, uh, certain things because only Spanish speaking outlets will cover them. Right. So, yeah. So the documentary itself, I would argue, isn't that amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, um, but the, what it's talking about is, is very important. And so thanks Ovid for having it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's kind of the theme of Ovid. Thanks Ovid for having this. <laughs> um, uh, you want to talk about Lynn Sachs? Sure. Uh, I got to see, uh, actually I got to see two Lynn Sachs films. I saw the longest one okay. and the shortest one. Uh, okay. Uh, the Lynn Sachs has a n- n- numerous films on uh, on Ovid, and uh, they're all short films. There's no features. Uh, the right. longest one was an hour and four minutes. Uh, that was the one I watched, and the shortest one was four minutes and forty seconds, and that was the other one I watched. Uh, right. So why don't why don't you give an introduction because you saw more of Lynn Sachs than I did? Well, yeah. So Lynn Sachs is a um, director who started in the 80s um, making little documentary shorts for TV. Um, one of those is on on there. It's called uh, Sermons and Sacred Pictures. I'll talk about that in a minute. Um, but then between 1994 and 2009, she made a series of films um, which are to five specifically five of them. She, I'm pretty sure she made other films besides, but five of them are collectively called the I Am Not a War Photographer series, which mm-hmm. um, is a collection of five films about her traveling around the world to countries that have been damaged by, scarred by international conflict, places like Bosnia mm-hmm. and Vietnam and Germany. And she goes there and she makes these documentaries, but they're experimental documentaries about herself and the place and her connection to the place. And mm-hmm. it's these very, you know, I, I kind of went on, uh, I've been, I've been, you know, getting back into studying poetry as of late. And so it's, which is why the films of Lynn Sachs kind of called out to me because they're, mm-hmm. they say is like, this is a combination of poetry and a, a visual kind of poetry. And it really is there. These are experimental experimental documentaries and so we get these kind of abstract um exploration of ideas as opposed to the very by the numbers way that you might see in something like el poeta or the um i would argue very successful way but also very traditional way of documentary style making in something like the madeline anderson films Mm -hmm. um from the 60s and, and early 70s um and here we have something much more much more strange and weird and less obvious and i i really found myself getting in, into her work um why don't we start with the one that that we both saw which was actually her most recent uh, uh on the on the collection in the collection that she has um uh, and the shortest uh starfish aorta colossus <laughs> uh so uh, this is about a poet uh named uh, paulo javier uh and um Lynn Sachs made essentially a film to poetry, a film to like right. uh, images to match up with uh, one of uh, Paulo Javier's poems. 
Uh, and the poem is called Starfish Aorta Colossus, and it's uh, based on, like, it's constructed of a lot of 8mm footage, uh, like, like fragments that uh, right. Lynn Sachs had previously shot. So she's, like, also turning into this, like, found art piece, kind of sifting through her older films. Uh, and so there's a lot of images that are... Uh, kind of random. Like, she's selecting them deliberately, but they're based on, like, a very specific uh, set of parameters. Uh, there's uh, footage from a tour she did of Puerto Rico. There's uh, images of uh, the AIDS quilt during uh, the 1980s. Um, and it is just sort of, like, delving into this beautiful, artistic, uh, very much uh, like we were talking about with Alan René, this kind of uh, human mind and how the, you know, sort of the free associations therein, how, and how mm -hmm. the, uh, poetry, I think, is one of the functions it serve, it serves is to, uh, unlock that and using words to delve a little bit more directly into the function of the human mind. It's right. a very, it's a very formal art form and yet it is tapping into the rawest part of ourselves. Um, Especially so something, yeah. a poem like this one, which is composed mm. of mostly just nouns. Like it's, yeah, it is, it's, we hear readings of stuff oh, like yeah. starfish, aorta, colossus. Yeah. And we're just like, okay, <laughs> this is weird. I kind of like uh, it. I, I wonder if I can find like text of the actual poem online. But yeah, it, it is just uh, these really fascinating, uh, not even descriptive words, just evocative words and right. we're kind of uh trying to like link little pieces of our brain like little neurons firing and connecting to other things like growing new synapses in our minds by making these associations uh it it felt weirdly scientific to me but that's you know not in a in a cold clinical way just in no. uh trying in a documented kind of way that science is meant like, to observe and the chemical reaction when we mix yeah. these words and images together the, it's yeah uh, they're they're like observing reporting and trying out these new th new associations which in some cases work in some cases are completely oblique but yeah. uh in in uh, in a fun sort of way in a fun way i i i in i enjoyed watching it i enjoyed how hypnotic it was uh, yeah. <laughs> uh having seen the other uh the other short by uh, i keep wanting to call her lynn Shay. uh the the other lynn Sachs film uh was uh, her use of sound is, is really fascinating her use of music these kinds of weird uh meditative uh sort of synth soundscapes that go along with uh, these kind of abstract uh, poetic words kind of put you into this weird uh, detached meditative state that allows those images to enter your brain a little bit more deeply. Uh, yeah, it's, it's neat. Mm -hmm. um, going back to, uh, I'll, I'll talk about the, the other three that I saw, and then you can talk about um, your day is my night. Uh, Sermons and sacred pictures is All from right. 1989. And it was a made-for-TV documentary um, about a about a documentary documentary filmmaker from the 30s and 40s, um, mm. and it's about Reverend Lamb Taylor, who was a black preacher, a Baptist preacher, who 
had a camera and would document his life in the 30s and 40s and create and would screen them for his congregations. He was a very very well-known Baptist preacher. He was known for his how animated and and uh, 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 alive his his sermons were, how big mm-hmm. and um, how he would move around and all these things. And he would also just sometimes get out his movie camera and show his movies to people. And for his congregations, that was something kind of revolutionary because Hollywood wasn't showing their faces. Um, in the 30s and 40s. And yet here were these silent films, documentary films, of him going on train rides and of him going to schools, him filming baptisms, um, he, him filming uh, all of the, the infrastructure that black people had created um, in lieu of them not being able to get social services from the federal government. So they mm-hmm. had their own welfare system. They had their own, you know, they had their own essentially little local governments that would help out people um, because the federal government wasn't. And so he's documenting all of these things and he's going to the National Baptist Conventions and filming those. And so we get to see those we also get to see people watching them, and we get to mm-hmm. hear uh, disembodied um, voices speak of him and how kind of a wild figure he was, um, including uh, his, his widow. And and it's yeah, it's just it's this very interesting portrait of someone who, again, you wouldn't know existed um, if it weren't for if it weren't for his his films and someone taking the time to commission a documentary about him Mm. um in at least in the more mainstream sense and so yeah lynn Sachs. it's a it's a fairly uh uh there's not much experimental uh uh imagery going on here yet um but there is a definite definite uh definite uh mastery of of how to handle the documentary and so that's about half an hour and it's, it's quite good then we have yeah. i saw two of her five films that are part of the i am not a war photographer series um which way is east notebooks from vietnam which is about her going on a trip in 1992 or three um to vietnam to visit her sister who lives there um mm. and then the last happy day um, from 2009 is about her trying to figure out about this distant cousin of hers who was in who had to flee Germany um, in at the, before the beginning of World War II um, was in Romania um, went to Hungary eventually ended up in Brazil because he just kept having to flee for one reason or another um mm-hmm. And the kind of, but he was also this, he also went to, ended up, he, he hid out during the war in Italy um, and mm-hmm. was uh, hiding prisoners of war in his attic to avoid being found by the Italian regime. Um, he was a doctor that knew 13 languages um, and this distant cousin of hers. And so it's telling his story by going and interviewing his son. But it's mm-hmm. also about recreating this uh, play that she put on as a child with of 
Winnie the Pooh. Okay. And it's recreating that play that she did as a child with some German children. Hmm. Um, or maybe it's her son and her friends. I'm not sure. But, and they're recreating the play because this doctor was actually famous for trans, briefly, like very famous for translating Winnie the Pooh into Latin. Um, he, I have that. You have it. So I, this I is have the this. Okay. I have the, the, the standard Latin translation of Winnie the Pooh. Cause I, I, I got it in high school. I, I studied Latin in high school. Yeah, so he, he's the guy <laughs> oh that did that. Okay. It's this guy. It's a distant right. cousin of Lynn Sachs. Oh, and weird. So, okay. Yeah, and so it's just about this very odd life that this man had and about how international conflict kind of drove him from his family, from his happiness. Um, but how his intellectualism kept, essentially mm. kept him afloat. He knew all these languages, so he could always get in touch with someone and he could talk to some government about helping him. Um, he worked with the Americans after World War II. He was a doctor. He did all of these things. Da, 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 da. When he went to Brazil, he was completely broke and had no options. So he went on a game show and because he knew everything about Bach and the subject of the week was Bach, he won a ton of money, and that allowed oh, him to great. buy a house and live th- and become somewhat stable in Brazil. Oh, that's uh, funny. And so, yeah, it's just this very interesting portrait told in this very interesting manner. Hmm. Um, which way is East, by the way, which is probably my favorite of, of the Lynn Sachs films that I've seen, is this probably the most uh, uh, stream of consciousness of her films because mm. it isn't like essentially telling a narrative about someone else. It is just her essentially it's essentially like a travel log. Okay. And and it's shot on film, which uh, the last happy day isn't. Um, and so there's this very um, there's this you get a lot of of beautiful tricks of the camera that you can only do with film like slowing mm-hmm. down the shutter speed and so everything become a kind of this dreamy haze um, and it was really funny to watch which way is east notebooks from vietnam after recently having returned from ecuador with about 100 gigabytes of video um, and a whole book of poetry um, that I've written because I was I've been thinking about how I'm gonna put this all together and then I watch which way is east notebooks from Vietnam and it's like essentially exactly what I'd be going for and, and <laughs> Darn, I they like, took oh, okay. your ah uh, Lynn yeah. Sachs stole your idea dang but also okay. man I really like Lynn Sachs now <laughs> and um, <laughs> so yeah so I I I really I really liked going through her stuff and specifically seeing right. like that's that's how I want to make movies. It's all it's I mm. I throughout my life I've my the person that I've looked to to like I would make a, if I made a movie I would make it like that. Um. And right now I'm kind of in between Simon Lang and Lynn Sachs I think. <laughs> well, so. when when you make your when you make your scripted uh, drama, it's going to be the Simon Lang film, and when you make your right. documentary film, it's going to be the Lynn Sachs thing. And when you're uh, accepting yeah. your Palm Door, just be sure to. Uh, Give thanks to to Lynn Sachs, 
and uh, yes. just say and and be sure because th- this is where cinema began and this is where I began and now that I'm a also Palm shout winner, out to Ovid TV you never sponsored me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Does anybody remember Ovid? They were the Quibi of the art house world, but they lasted longer. Um, yeah. <laughs> Tell me about your day of night. Yeah, well, I'm gonna. I'm, that actually is a pretty good uh, segue into your day as my night because um, Lynn Sachs. I, I did a little bit of like reading up on on your day as my night because um, it it is that kind of stream of consciousness thing. But I think Lynn Sachs is tapping into something incredibly important about documentary filmmaking and how inorganic it has become. Mm-hmm. Thanks to the thanks to the ubiquity of cameras and the way people understand the way cameras operate and the way they understand video proliferates, nobody is in their natural state anymore. When you point point a camera at somebody for an interview, they're not going to reveal something uh, vulnerable and raw and real. They're going to turn on their performance face. Everybody is a performer now, and uh, yeah, Lynn Sachs different. Back in like the 30s and 40s when Lamb Taylor was making mm. his movies or when Madeline Anderson was making her films mm. in the 60s. Or, uh, or when Lynn Sachs. Still yeah. Novel. Yeah. Or when Lynn Sachs was making her films in the 90s. You know, it wasn't everybody was running around uh, with video cameras making documentary films. Oh, sure, there were plenty of people doing that. But mm-hmm. it, it was before the, the time when everybody had a camera in their pocket. Right. Uh, before and the DSLR revolution. Exactly. Uh, so uh, she decided to kind of change her tune a little bit when it came to documentary filmmaking. Uh, Your Day is My Night is a, a short film. It's about an hour and four minutes long about a phenomenon in the Lower East Side of New York where a lot of immigrant families who couldn't afford their own apartments would uh, co-let a space and... As such, beds became shared beds, uh, when, and people who would sleep all day and they would leave and then someone would come in just as they were leaving. A complete stranger, not a, a family, family member of theirs, not a friend, just somebody else who was using that space. They'd move into the same apartment okay. during the day or during the night when somebody else isn't there and sleep in that bed. So the bed is constantly occupied by some, <laughs> uh, somebody just taking their shift in it. Kind of and, reminds uh, me of that short film that we saw for Best of Fest Two, mm. where it was the 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 man and the woman who occupied the same room for different halves of the day. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Tr- I think it's uh, called Traces. Uh, v- uh, v- vaguely, uh, I dumped so much so much of that straight into my brain. Uh, sadly, some of it fell through. Uh, right. But yeah, the, this idea of shared beds is something that goes back, you know, century or you know, centuries, of course. Uh, the idea of a shift bed has been an interesting uh, subject of photographers and and you know, people doing studies on you know how terrible economics of of uh, the immigrants uh, who are passing their way through New York City. Uh, so Lynn Sachs was interested in that. She wanted to make a film about these shift beds and the people who live in them. And so she found uh, in uh, New York's Chinatown, one of these shift beds and found seven people who are living this way or living in shift beds. They're all older. They're all over the age of, uh, let me me look here. They're all between the ages of 58 and 78. And she not only uh, spends some time in the space, but she also follows them throughout the day, like what they're doing when they're not in their shift bed. Uh, And 
But because she was concerned about sort of the performative aspect of following somebody with a camera, she decided to make her subjects collaborators and had them kind of script and perform certain segments of their lives. So they became uh, kind of co-directors unto themselves and got to tell their stories in their own way. So what we're seeing is not this, you know, hard-hitting portrayal as to what the immigrant experience is like. What we're seeing is a bunch of older first-time filmmakers collaborating with an experienced filmmaker, Lynn Sachs, and uh, staging their lives the way they see their own lives. And I feel that's like, cool. yeah, I think that's actually really fascinating. And it's all, uh, you know, Lynn Sachs is the, the ultimate director. And so she's the one kind of editing it and binding all of these things together. So right. we do get essentially this dream of snippets and stories of people telling their real tales, but in a, a very, I don't want to say detached, but I guess that that's the best word, a detached sort of way where we're kind of distancing ourselves from a raw truth but in so doing we're getting at an ecstatic truth and uh it's incredibly fascinating because it becomes incredibly dreamlike and this plays back into that memory thing uh (laughs) this is uh, i'll I'll get to uh, memory but yeah i think this is uh using cinematography those wonderful soundscapes and this weird kind of uh stream of consciousness narrative to tell uh the story of a uh, what is essentially the consciousness of a bed it's almost like a, a ghost story where we get to see <laughs> okay the the living people that are currently haunting something very real um yeah i i dug okay cool um i i hope to dig um, the next time yeah. that we meet. Uh, the, uh, before we get to uh, the last film that we're talking about, which we've both seen, mm-hmm. um, I'm going to talk about the film that I have been meaning to see since episode one of All About Ovid, and I just haven't gotten oh. around to it. Um, and I've finally gotten around to it, and I knew I had to get to it before the end of the year because it is technically a 2021 release. Um, oh, okay. And... It is uh, the film Lost Course, um, directed by Jill Lee. Um, and it's a three-hour documentary. Um, it's put out by Icarus Films, uh, who follow me on Twitter. Hi, by the way. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> they, 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 well, we're, we're constantly hyping their stuff. So, yeah, they, they follow me, right, too. Yeah. And kind of like, we'll re- but this is a film explicitly by Icarus Films, put out by Icarus Films. Um, uh-huh. And it is a three-hour documentary um, from first-time filmmaker Jill Lee. And it's a film that has been was made over the course of about six years, hmm. um, and it tells six or seven years, and it tells the story of a village in southern China that kind of spontaneously started democracy. Hmm. Um, and so, what happened is that this film is divided into two parts. Part one is called protests. And at the beginning of the film, we learn in text that the village committee that has been put up by that has been in, put in place by the Communist Party, by the party, um, as it's called, um, has essentially is is been acting corruptly. That they've been selling off public land and other people's lands to 
other, you know, interests so that they can develop the land as they see fit and not the people who actually live there. And when this corruption was discovered, there was a series of protests and it led up to what's called the 921 incident, which is in September of September 21st of 2011. There were some protests and there was in response to the protests, some police brutality and that got everyone's attention. And so this is where Jill Lee enters. And we are following the protests. We follow the various leaders. Um, uh, there are uh, men named Bo, Lin, Mao, Chao, Chang, um, and Hong. And then also we follow uh, Jing, who is this young, about 20-year-old guy who is documenting them, who lives mm. there and is documenting this process. And several of the leaders are incarcerated. One is killed in prison, and he becomes mm. a martyr figure. Bo is, is killed in prison in October. Um, and what it leads to is Lin is uh, spearheaded by Lin, um, is that you, you, what we need, we need to have democracy. We need to elect our own officials to get our land back. And it becomes this series of just wild images where we have long live democracy long live the party and so you're like wait it's like i am a full communist long live democracy and so it's just this very you know cognitive dissonance thing where we're seeing these images that you like you would not expect like people talking about needing fair and free elections and mm. then the voting ballots are getting stamped by stamps with a hammer and sickle on them and you're just like, whoa. whoa. <laughs> and, but it's like, it is this democratic revolution in this village in southern China. And the government is just kind of unable to do anything about it. Hmm. And they hold fair and free elections. And yeah, the corrupt officials are allowed to run if they want because this is a fair and free election. But none of them get elected. And it's this the first half of this film is this really rather inspiring show of how local politics can work. And watching the first half of this documentary um, was kind of like watching um, one of my favorite films from last year, Frederick Wiseman City Hall, which is hmm. this four and a half hour epic of how local politics in the city of Boston works mm. and despite everything that 45 is doing that on this level people are getting helped and progress is being made mm. um, the second half of lost course is called after protests and it takes place over the course of about five six years huh. um, and it is about how it, if if the first half is like City Hall, the second half is like one of the other best documentaries from last year, Collective. Ah. Um, which is, so they, um, have you seen Collective? Yeah. The Romanian documentary? Yeah, the, the Nightmare of Bureaucracy in Action. Right. And we get to see the provisional government is set up to, re, to react to this horrific catastrophe. And it realized that the corruption goes so deep and no one can do anything about it. And it's just so depressing and horrifying. So that's the second half of this documentary. Oh, God. Oh, no. Collective made because, me well, furious. It's, it's not as horrific and violent as that, all uh -huh. that. But it is about how the new elected leaders, turns out, are either corrupted 
or ousted. Hmm. And all of these people who we were really rooting for in the first half, turns out that they're accepting bribes from construction companies and how they're trying to cover it up. But even... And then people start to get mad because none of their land is being returned. And so as soon as one of them, uh, one of the village people in the village committee tried to ho- to start an actual like dialogue with the people and like we're actually going to have a village like an actual village committee where it's mm-hmm. actually everyone together deciding it's not just going to be a representative d- democracy it's actually going to be a democracy democracy like in the greek sense where everyone has one vote deciding on all issues and as soon as that is suggested those people are arrested for being corrupt the Chinese government is corrupting these people and then arresting them as soon as they try to do anything good. Um, some people manage to get out. But, uh, okay, yeah. <laughs> most of them do not. And the people who do get out are kind of disillusioned. One manages to make it to New York and then the 2016 election rolls around and he's like, hey, look what's happening in... in in Wukong, we need your help, and everyone's just like, "Woo, Trump!" And it's 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 kind of a similar thing to what we saw in El Poeta, where this huge issue that was being covered by so many people in Wukong, like we see lots of uh, of journalists and covering the protests, but now mm-hmm. that this guy is going to the U.S. to raise awareness, he's not getting hurt at all, and he's just some some Chinese guy on the street. Mm-hmm. Um, and and the activist Jing, um, who manages to make it out, uh, is essentially disillusioned. My activism didn't did nothing. There were no support ne- networks for me, so I'm just gonna go and leave and mm. not come back. And it's it's depressing. What? <laughs> <laughs> Gee, what a great it's ending. A, it's. It's a really amazing documentary because of just like we get to see everything like we are getting access to to these people in a way that seems almost like wow like we're the thing some of the things that we're seeing and hearing in the first hand testimonies like we wouldn't get this in the states like this kind of people talking dirt about each other or mm. saying yeah, um, the secret police are here, and they're gonna take this guy away now. And like, we're actually, we're actually like, moment to moment, we're actually. Jill Lee is friends with all of these people. I don't think she's from Wukong, but she's clearly very, very good friends. And we actually never, I don't, we maybe hear her voice once or twice, but she is hmm. not a part of this documentary really. She's just there. Clearly has has a quite a good rapport with these people because she is getting a lot of very personal insights into their lives. And so it's a really great picture of how local politics is, again, almost more essential than the federal politics because while the China might be China, in this one village in Wukong, people did try and almost made a difference. <laughs> mm-hmm. And But in the end, most people ended up in jail. And yeah. It's it's quite the watch, um, mm. and it is one of the, the the best documentaries I've seen this year, and so I, okay. I recommend people check it out. But 
yeah, it's the first half is really uplifting. The second half is no, we're not, we're the, your optimism was was just that. It was optimism. It wasn't mm. true. <laughs> I, uh, it, in the light of films I've seen recently, films like Genus Pan and The Painted uh-huh. Bird, uh, <laughs> these these are films very much about how there's no hope left in the world, and that right. he, and that humanity is just a pile of crap. Um, I, f- I feel like we're going to be seeing that for a couple more years yet, uh, and and sort I of like I don't think the... this film is is as pessimistic though as 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 Genus okay. Pan. Nowhere near well, as, as pessimistic as Genus Pan. It's showing that that there is that there is genuine effort being made and people can be inherently good, but that it's the the systems will eventually break down any meaningful change, but the people will still fight. Some okay. people will still always be fighting. Hmm. So I, it's it's that kind of message. It's not that it's it's nowhere near a genus pan. Uh, okay. <laughs> uh, the the lack of hope seems to be a, a common theme in a lot of films in recent years, and uh, I'm I'm guessing that has very much to do with the rise of uh, authoritarians, uh, authoritarian rulers mm-hmm. all over the planet, including in the United States. Um. Yeah. But uh, I didn't get to see this one, uh, and it, it sounds exhilarating. Yeah. I do love a good uh, a good film about sort of hopelessness. <laughs> Again, that's only the second half. Okay. The first half is quite quite uplifting, and it's it's yeah, it's it's pretty great. Okay. Um, Sorry, but, I, I'm uh, I'm I'm joking. I didn't see the film, but you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, but what a film that you did see that I also saw two months ago is a film. Uh, the film, mm. the, the, the the 2016 uh, film, uh, Thai film, By the Time It Gets Dark. And this is what mm. I'll say before I let you go, is that I talked about this film in a previous episode, and I very specifically didn't talk that much about it because it goes places where you do not expect. Um, you've mm. had two months to see it now. Um, let's talk full spoilers here. Okay. Uh, because I want to <laughs> talk about the rest of this movie because it's mm. great. Uh, it is great. Um, and in fact, when you said, let's watch an Ally and Renee film, I went into the search bar of, of Ovid and just typed in the word memory and, uh, mm-hmm. just as a curiosity. And that, that one looked a little familiar. So I ended up kind of stumbling into it. Um, and, uh, stumbling into a film you had seen already. So now we get to catch up and I'm glad we get to have, do full spoilers because yes. there's, there's a lot of, uh, wonderful rich strangeness in this movie. This is by director Anocha Sui Chakornpong. And, yep. uh, first try and uh <laughs> it's uh it's one of those wonderful films where uh every every 15 or 20 minutes the camera will pull back and reveal that everything you've been seeing is a film within a film uh and then we'll occasionally go back into the film and uh there's a lot of layers of reality that are being played with in this film uh it's and, and very much uh like uh, like the shared beds documentary there's going to be a little bit of playing with the notion of a genuine story told by a filmmaker versus the art of the necessary artificiality that comes with that practice uh because the the i guess the opening bit is about the young filmmaker interviewing the survival of a student massacre back in the 70s so we start with right. some some dramatized footage of the student massacre and somebody telling a story over it, and then we get to see sort of the relationship between the filmmaker and her interview subject. And the camera will 
drift away from that and start to follow somebody else. And then it's, yeah. then it's this guy's a tobacco story. farmer. Yeah. Well, a, a bit. actually it's not a tobacco farmer because it turns out he's a famous actor. What? <laughs> yeah. It's about a tobacco farmer and uh, we get to learn his, his story, but then yeah, we pull back and it turns out he's a famous actor who's making a movie about a tobacco farmer uh, and it's connected through like the cigarette uh, there's uh, a pop star who's involved in all of this. Uh, it all, and it all is like trying to create this like kind of circular connect between right. these events of the past and trying to remember them uh, and trying mm-hmm. to ensure that we can use film in a responsible way, but also the way how everything is blended into this weird kind of musical media landscape where the modern and the ancient are essentially one and the same. And it goes to a final shot that uh, I completely adored. Uh, and I think is oh, like, yeah, that last shot is, is oh, chef's kiss hmm. cinema. <laughs> yeah. It, it's, it's like, ah, oh, the snake did eat its own tail. What a beautiful thing. Uh, it, it really turns into, <laughs> I'm not sure if you're familiar with Finnegan's Wake about how uh, the, the last sentence of Finnegan's Wake runs into the first sentence of, of Finnegan's Wake. It, it picks up sounds, mid-sentence, le- right. leaves off mid-sentence, so it's, it's essentially meant to be this gigantic circular work that you never stop reading. Uh, I feel like something is is something similar is trying to, to happen here, where we're uh, we end the film in this weird kind of blending coda and link it right back up to imagery that we saw right at the beginning. And it's not like set up and payoff. It's like circling back around. So you can just start the film again, right at that moment and continue to watch it kind of indefinitely. As soon as you started talking about it, it's like, I was like, I, I do want to start the film again. I want to see this again. I, I, yeah, this film is. Is, is, this film is great. Um, yeah. Like the, the same girl will appear like several times throughout the film in completely different contexts. Yeah. Not yeah. at all related. Um, and yeah, at one point, like where the, the first narrative thread really drops off is where the young documentary filmmakers like going through a, for a jog or something through the forest. And then she sees a child in a bear costume and then falls to the ground when she sees this really colorful glowing purple flower. And you're like, Whoa. well, <laughs> and, it, and it just drops into a dream. It, well, it's, it it's not, it's not just a dream. It's actually a literal drug trip because she was just taken to see like this mushroom farmer and she ended up taking some hallucinogens and I think that little girl was her, and she was sort of like facing her own past. Uh, and uh, w- was it a bear costume or a lion costume? Uh, d- d- is a little. It was, I think it was a bear. It's also been two months, but yeah, it's, it's a little. I'm typically more accurate about plot details than you. Uh... <laughs> I, I, I I value plot details very little. I found that you know my brain doesn't absorb them just because they're not important to me. Film is about uh, memory and experience in a lot of ways, and the actual technical construct of how we get to those moments is kind of incidental in a lot of ways. Uh, So, yeah, I I, I tend not to uh, not to glom (laughs) onto certain plot details. A bear or a boar, a bear or a boar. Um, Uh, This film is not a boar. I, I took it that, that that was sort of her younger self and she's sort of going on this sort of hallucinatory yeah. drug trip and that's sort of what forces her through these 
apertures of the film's reality, as it were, where she ends up kind of like finding herself in other bodies. Uh, it's very telling that one of the bodies she finds herself in is that of a Buddhist monk. And, uh, because yeah, a, a big part of, so there, there's the spiritual element of, of the movie where, uh, you know, a big part of Buddhism is this transmigration into new bodies. So I think there's this Buddhist element to, uh, using cinema to explore that spiritual concept. Yeah. I, it's, it's interesting because when I saw this film, I saw it the night before we recorded and I really mm. didn't have a grasp on it yet. I was still mm. just kind of. I didn't really have any interpretations of anything. I was just kind of in love with what I felt. And and I still don't really have any interpretations of anything. I don't feel like, yeah, this is clearly an allegory for... I I don't know, man. It was just a wild experience. And and I loved it. And I still love it. And I want to go back to it. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah. By by the time it gets dark is... It's... is fun is is it's, good it's something that it's, you're it's, not gonna find promoted on netflix <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's it's pretty spectacular um it's it's always te- just because they're they're both thai it's tempting to compare the films to apichapang or sethakul who also uses right. uh cinema to explore a lot of buddhist concepts and has these kinds of elements of magical realism uh this is a, a far more exciting sprightly uh joyous movie uh than anything api chapung where Sethical puts together who uh, tends to make films that are uh very still and very silent and very slow moving um yeah you've seen memoria i haven't mm-hmm. um I, I have seen what his short film from this year called night colonies mm-hmm. uh, which is just a shot shots of a bed at night covered in bugs <laughs> um, like yeah, that that's about that's about mm. a pitch upon verse distilled, and here there's there's just a lot more going on. Yeah, and, yeah. and, and it's it's yeah. a lot more urbane. Uh, it's a lot more aware of the the no other way to really put this the the fineries of the modern world, I suppose. Um, <laughs> and it's also very self-aware as to what cinema is doing to this conversation and how the cinematic language is altering the way we talk about things and using that visual language to comment on itself, which is, I, I love that kind of crap. I love when cinema is bold enough to make a film about sort of the way it itself is functioning, when a film becomes like itself a media study. It's it's no surprise yeah. that my favorite film of the year was uh, Nobuhiko, Nobuhiko Obayashi's Labyrinth of Cinema, which is directly about how how film is has historically been used as war propaganda over over the course of its own history, and maybe we need right. to start confronting that legacy. Yeah, uh, that's that's Labyrinth of Cinema's great movie. All right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> And with that, that's everything we've seen for on Ovid lately. And mm-hmm. uh, yeah, um, so yeah, Whitney, uh, uh, where... we'll, we'll we'll be back, and we'll be back in a bit. We'll we'll talk about more. There's yeah, always we'll be back in a bit. always always new things to talk about Ovid, and uh, uh, maybe we'll. There are some that I've been meaning to catch up on that you've recommended. A fresh kill is like right there at the head of my to watch list, and I just still haven't gotten around to it. Um, I I will someday be brave enough to watch a, a, one of the Wong Bing documentaries that I keep talking about. And uh, same, uh, yeah, it's like I, I really want to see Till Madness Do Us Part, but 
uh, four hours in an insane asylum. I'm not sure if that's you know something I'm ready for today. Uh, <laughs> yeah, even Frederick Wiseman only spent an hour and a half in that one. <laughs> uh, yeah, seriously. Uh, uh, but yeah, uh, but, but we'll be back and we'll talk about what we get to. And it's going to be something interesting because there's always something interesting to find on Ovid. Yeah. Um, and in the meantime, Whitney, uh, where can people find you? Oh, where can they find me? Uh, I, along with one William Bibiani over on uh, the critically acclaimed network, uh, we have a series of podcasts. We do two podcasts a day. We're just always recording stuff. And uh, so you you can subscribe over there or you can get a bunch of it for free and just listening to us chinwag about uh, new films, uh, old TV, uh, Oscar nominated movies. Uh, we have a Star Trek podcast and a Batman podcast. Talked about a three uh, episode Batman arc. We got into the philosophy of Benedict Spinoza in one of the Batman episodes. We just go off on all kinds of strange, wonderful tangents. Your tangents in specifically the Batman podcasts are are quite legendary because you'll, I'll forget what podcast I'm listening to and I'm like, oh, right. Batman. Yeah, oh, okay. So, anyway, how are we going to loop this back to Batman? Because we... Uh, we At what point you got into arguments about how geometry works and i was like huh <laughs> <laughs> we uh we took our robin's expletives uh like holy whatever he says like holy squirrel cage and we yeah. uh we tried to spin that off into his theological beliefs like if he believes everything is holy <laughs> does he believe that everything is of god and everything is equally holy uh and we go off on a tangent. Is he getting like into Shintoism here? Like, how's yeah. this? Yeah. So th- then this, this is how Spinoza brought up, was brought up, because part of Spinoza's okay. theology was that everything was, like, God is not an outside being to be worshipped, but we are all of this divine divinity. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, we get to go off on all kinds of wonderful tangents. That's why we decided to... It's especially hard to stay on point with Batman, because, you know, after a while, how much can you really say about freaking Batman? Batman. Uh, but yeah you can find all of our stuff over there I would really love to ask that question to all of the filmmakers who keep making stuff about Batman it's like what is there more to say at this point (laughs) why do we keep coming back to this goddamn character Uh, but yeah we have that Um, I'm on this podcast called All About Ovid uh, with uh, one uh, venerable future Palm Door winner named B. Peterson Uh, and doubt it but okay (laughs) Uh, I was recently on a podcast uh, where I talked about uh, lamb, pig, and wolf, and we coined the phrase uh, hoofcore. You can find uh, <laughs> links to that on Twitter. Uh, there, there's no name for the podcast, just a conversation I had with uh, a, a young man who wanted to talk about those movies. Uh, and I have a new radio drama that I just uh, yes. released to the public. It's a Christmas show, just in time for Christmas. It's about a woman who is stalking Frosty the Snowman in a car. And uh, it uh, stars my good friend Chelsea Spirito, who is a complete genius. So uh, please, please, uh, if you want to buy that from me, just contact me on the social media. I'm at Whitney Seibold on the Instagrams and the Twitters, and I'll be happy to arrange something for you. All right. Yes. Who who is Whitney Seibold? You you always open that. Uh, you often open when I introduce you at the top of the episode. You always go, "Who am I?" Mm. Um, and and every time you say that, I think of this one random video <laughs> that Hugh Jackman did 
um, while he was promoting Les Mis. Mm. Um, and he sang the song, Who Am I? But it was a version of the song mm. about what if Wolverine was singing that song? And so, who am I? I am an X-Men that is not blue. And, and, and it's just, he's belting this beautiful song about, I'm Wolverine. And it's just, anyway. So every time you say, who am I? I just think of Hugh Jackman belting out in, in perfect Broadway voice, I'm Wolverine. Um, anyway. <laughs> um, who am I? I'm B. Peterson, and you can find me on Twitter at Blueberry Closet. Um, I'm actually might be starting up a new project that is not film related, and if I have more to say about that, I'll probably just edit in some little thing at the beginning or end of this podcast about it. So um, yeah, that's, <laughs> uh, that's 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 pretty much it. So uh, th- thanks for joining us. Thank you very much for listening because uh, we know that there's a pull these days when it comes to films to focus only on the big and the mainstream stuff. So. Thanks for spending time with us today here on The Margins. Good afternoon. Ah.